Hello, everyone, and welcome to this episode of the Best Pictures Podcast. I'm Ian, this is Maggie, and on this, what will be a pretty somber episode, uh, we are doing the 66th Best Picture winner, Schindler's List. Uh, yes, up top, just warning for a lot of disturbing violence, um, racial violence, sexual violence. It's a very sad movie. I think a lot of people probably know that. It is a 1993 historical epic drama directed by Steven Spielberg and is about the Holocaust and specifically the role that Oscar Schindler played in rescuing, what was it? It was like 1,200 people Mm -hmm. almost, I think. And it's a brutal film. It is a very brutal film, but I mean, when you know, when it's a film about one of the largest atrocities in human history, like it shouldn't be easy to watch. Yeah, it's a very nothing is salacious or over the top. It's all done with intention and is brutal for it. Yes, but so just wanted wanted to uh, throw that out there. Um, don't listen to this episode if you're already sad. Yeah, the, it, yeah. Ian and I, I think when we do sad movies, we always talk about cry count. And I think technically my cry count was one in this movie because I started about like, I want to say 30 minutes in and then just didn't stop. So it's, I guess to gloss over it, which we won't when we get into watch notes, it's like uh, very effective at giving you the emotions that you, uh, well, that Spielberg wants you to for these different scenes. So um, and the story as a whole, and honestly, I think is appropriate given the subject matter. Agreed. It was written by Steve Zalian and based on the 1982 nonfiction novel Schindler's Ark by Thomas Keneally. It stars Liam Neeson, Ralph Fiennes, and Ben Kingsley, who we on the podcast would know from Gandhi. I will say I saw him in one, I forget which scene it was, and it suddenly clicked that Ben Kingsley was also Gandhi and I couldn't unsee Gandhi for the rest of the film. <laughs> I I mean, all three of them are really, really good in this. Kingsley's my favorite. I think to jump ahead just a smidge, I think the reason he was snubbed was he was not as big of a character as the other two, which is not fair to him. I know, because... I feel like he's the most crucial character to a certain extent. Anyway, we'll get into that. The movie is shot in black and white. I think uh, there is a couple small instances of color, which we will call out because they're very specifically chosen um, and used to fantastic effect. But I think this might be the first black and white movie we've covered since The Apartment or mostly black and white movie since The Apartment. Yeah, I can't think of... That was the best picture winner. Oh, yeah, yeah. (laughs) But I I can't think of another one since we kind of moved into color. A lot of this movie was shot on location in Poland. uh, A lot of the sets were recreated from historical documents. John Williams does the score. I like the score overall. I do have conflicted feelings about the main theme And I think it comes down to the fact that it starts in a really like mournful tone and key with the the solo violin, which um, Perlman is the one who's playing that, which is like, oh, glorious, really great violinist. But then it kind of moves into something that is a little warmer and too saccharine for my tastes. I don't know. It only the main theme is kind of where I have kind of mixed feelings 
I don't think it wasn't effective. It just felt a little off kilter to me. So that's my hot take for this episode. But <laughs> I liked the score a lot, but I will be honest, I wasn't paying a ton, a ton of attention to the score because I was just mesmerized by the cinematography pretty much the entire time. Uh, speaking of which, it was cinematographer Janusz Kaminski, who actually worked with Spielberg on like tons of projects. It's some of the best cinematography we've seen among Best Picture winners. Like it is, it is up there. Top five, at least. Yeah. And that's across, well, yeah, literally every film we've watched. So. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> not even Best Picture winners, including special episodes we've done. Like, Also, it's farcical to compare this to Beach Blanket Bingo. I'm just going to say. <laughs> oh, is that, that the most recent one we did? <laughs> I think it might be. Uh, oh. Oh, no, no, we did sunrise. We did, we did sunrise. sunrise. Okay, good. Good. Okay, good. We eased. Ooh. We eased into it. <laughs> Thank goodness. We eased into it. A little bit more I want to talk about with the filming before I get into awards and nominations. So uh, Spielberg didn't really storyboard it. He very much kind of like moved with what was going on and kind of where he felt he wanted to go at the time. Forty percent of it was shot with handheld cameras, which is a super high percentage. It was filmed without Steadicam, without elevated shots or zoom lenses. There were no zoom lenses. So the, all of those slow zooms were just them like moving. Holy shit. Like, I mean, ama- amazing, amazing camera work. And it really lent to this idea that he had that he really wanted to shoot it a lot like a documentary, you know, mm-hmm. covering this horrific event. And I think it works. I think that, you know, the way they use the like uh, text to kind of set the scene for you, I think they choose all the right moments. Even the style of the font that they're using is like reminiscent of 1930s and 40s mm-hmm. newsreels. So I think it was like such a good idea to like go for that style and that technique. I think it does give it this like timeless quality. And, you know, this isn't a movie that you want people to watch and think like, oh, that's dated. Well, and. I I disagree that it's timeless, but I think it's more, and correct me if I'm wrong, what I'm hearing you say is it's like documentary, like not quite found footage, but it's like giving you the feel of the era that it's supposed to be in. Yes. And let me rephrase a little bit. Timeless once we hit black and white and excluding the epilogue, because there is a lot of 90s clothing in the epilogue. Oh yeah, for sure. <laughs> but when we're like when we're when we're back in the day, in like yeah. that black and white, I think it does have this like kind of timeless quality to it. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was nominated for and won a lot of awards. So Spielberg wins for best director. Not surprising in any way, shape, or form. Zalian wins for best adapted screenplay. John Williams wins for best original score. Michael Kahn wins for best film editing. Editing is brilliant like there are very specific edits that i want to call out at certain points that i'm like wow did they just use an edit to like absolutely drive home like a theme yeah yeah the editing was superb kaminsky wins for best cinematography of course what possibly could have beat this (laughs) i looking at the list of films that were nominated like no just (laughs) i wonder if like other other cinematographers in that category that year were just like yeah i'm losing like there's no freaking way i mean you're still nominated like (laughs) i know but like (laughs) but yeah i i wouldn't be surprised level with this one and it also won for best art direction which i think is really cool especially considering like remember we're shooting in black and white right and like 
the way colors show up for Technicolor mm-hmm. is going to be very different than how they're going to show up on black and white. So like you, it's like this whole other level of design you have to have in mind, which I think is really cool. Well, and especially when you're in a particular historical era, making sure that everything feels cohesive and of the time period, like it's, it's impressive. Neeson was nominated for Best Actor but didn't win. Fines was nominated for Best Supporting Actor and didn't win. Where is Kingsley's nomination? That's my question. It was nominated for Best Makeup, nominated for Best Sound, and nominated for Best Costume Design. Okay, who beat them? Because For costume? No, for the acting noms. Because that I just... Okay, well, I'm not going to be able to comment on it because I haven't seen Philadelphia nor The Fugitives. So I just struggle to see both Neeson and Fines being outacted. But apparently the Academy thought they were. So I got to go watch those now. (laughs) Outside of the Oscars, uh, this movie, of course, gets a lot of love from the American Film Institute. So it was number nine on AFI's top movies of all time and then moved up a spot to number eight on the 10th anniversary edition. Oscar Schindler was the number 13 hero on their heroes and villains list. And Eamon Goth was number 15 on the villains list. I'm trying to decide whether I think Goth was a bigger villain than Schindler was a hero or not. They're kind of well matched. They really are. And there's a scene that hammers that home that I loved. Is it the one shot through the window pane, like the panes of the door? Uh, no, this was prior to that, where they were drinking on the balcony and the way that they were uh, staged and the way that they used such tight field of uh, like a tight um, depth of field in so many of these shots, just like it oh, it was filmed so well and they acted it so well. It, it, anyway, we'll get I'm there. I'm sure we'll get there. Um, we absolutely will. Don't worry. This is the one I don't get from AFI. It was number three on AFI's cheers, like top 100 cheers list, which I know their cheers is supposed to be like a this movie's inspirational. And at the end, you want to just like stand up and cheer because you're like what needed to happen should have happened. But I just don't think you can put this on any list that has the word cheer anywhere near it. The, yeah, I, I take actually a lot of issue with that because the point of the film is not to have like a triumphant ending the point is to hammer home how atrocious this was and it's like yes the right and good thing happened to the people they focused on in the film but that doesn't make it a cheer and for so many other people that's not what happened exactly so yeah i'm gonna i'm gonna hard disagree with afi on that one it is number three for epic films for afi which I see. And then other nominees that year were The Fugitive, In the Name of the Father, The Piano, and The Remains of the Day. I actually have not seen any of those, so cannot comment. Apparently, The Piano was Anna... Oh, God, I'm going to butcher her last name. I, I've only seen it written, never heard it. Heard uh, Anna Paquin? Paquin? I think it's Paquin. Paquin. Uh, first uh, Oscar win at 11 years old. <laughs> so for the, the piano. Okay, are you ready for watch notes? Uh, no, but uh, let's do it. So starting, we open with um, two candles burning down during Sabbath. And this little section's in color. Yeah, which I f- thought it was interesting that we kind of you're showing that now. And then as we immediately 
transition to in my notes, I call it a flashback, but it's not. It's the start of this story. The transition is the candles burn down. And as yeah. the candles burn down, there's less and less color until the only color is the flame. And then the candle goes out and we have the smoke rising from the snuffed candle transitioning into the smoke of a train. The trains are bringing in all of the Jewish Polish folk from the countryside to Krakow because um, that is where they are being relocated due to the Nazi forces having beaten the Polish forces um, in what, 1941-ish? 39. 39, okay, earlier. That is actually kind of an interesting thing that I didn't realize until now is, yes, they set each scene in a year, but the way that the whole film is constructed, I don't know, it it doesn't have as much of like a, a grounding in a particular time so much as the progression of the atrocities, which I I think is interesting, and I I really like it because it doesn't it it doesn't make you focus on the timeline so much as what actually occurred. Other other than like setting the scene for like we're starting after Germany has invaded Poland, or like you know this is the year and like Soviet forces are starting to like take other pieces of Poland or something like that. Other than that, like major quote unquote, like war events are not the focus of this. Yeah. We don't really mention battles. Like, no, no, no. This is, this is about these people and like the atrocities that they suffered. So that scene does introduce kind of a style that comes back in a couple of these very frantic sequences where you have a slow start of the list makers getting set up and you see kind of the minutia of the bureaucratic machine that this that is used kind of as a cover for this whole activity we see that time and time again people hiding behind this bureaucracy and the paperwork to almost treat the I don't want to like overuse the word atrocity, but atrocities that they are committing and that they are a part of. Of all the things that I think we cannot overuse the word atrocity, the Holocaust is one of them. So I, thanks for bearing with us using the same word a million times, but But it fits. It's it's the only word for it. So I loved grounding that in actual people and actual names. Well, and when I say actual, I mean more hyper focused on individuals. So to me that takes it to a much more personal place than a more sweeping sort of comment about the number of folks who are affected or things like that. It's more like these are humans who are individuals and complex and Yeah, but we also don't lose sight of the scale of it either. Like it's it's this incredible balance that the movie is able to strike. You were getting these like very intimate emotional moments with these people who you were getting to know and you're getting to see like their whole story, but like you never lose sight of the wider large scale horror that is surrounding them. It's well done. Absolutely. So in contrast to this, we get an introduction to Oscar Schindler. Editing doing so much work here. And the way it's going back and forth between like the chaos of this train station and then like the calm of his apartment. And we don't see him yet. 
We see like the expensive watch he's putting on, the cuff links. The final thing we see, which is very important, is the Nazi party membership pen that he pens to his lapel. But we're getting a very clear sense of him before we ever see him as like this man who likes money and expensive things and cares about power and influence. Exactly. Yeah. And that the kind of the almost noir style and it definitely aided by the black and white and the incredible contrast with very focused highlighting on like Schindler adds this like weird kind of mystery and foreboding like kind of feeling around him for me. I mean, he starts off very, very unlikable. Oh, yeah. We see him at a club. He's like, it's an interesting introduction because it starts off with us not liking him a whole lot because he's like obviously like kissing up to these higher level Nazi officers. But it is kind of setting up this theme of him of like his ability to read people and like control a room and manipulate. And like he understands what people in power want. Yeah. And how if he gives them that, then he can get what he wants in return. Exactly. And that's where in the whole scene in that club, it didn't fully hit home what he was doing until much later in the film. (laughs) Well, like maybe 20 minutes later. But he has managed to bring all of these disparate groups of German Nazi like SS officers and their entourages together to a single table where they are having a raucous party and enjoying the hell out of this whole thing. And he's getting like his pictures taken Mm -hmm. with them and stuff. Um, There is a specific shot that I want to talk about because my jaw dropped to the floor and I was like, oh my God, this is filmmaking. And it's you're behind Schindler and you see the hand raise into frame with the cigarette. We're pretty close in on it. He just flicks his wrist and we turn to see him just holding money. And then the maitre d's face comes into frame immediately being like, how can I help you? They use a shallow depth of field to huge effect throughout this entire film. And this was one of the first places where I really noticed it. Because again, you have it kind of out of focus in the background, this couple and well, three people moving into a table. Um, and you kind of like shift from the focus on what Schindler is doing with the maitre d' to them and back, but it's all in the same shot. And it's just, it creates this like really cohesive feel um, and keeps you in the moment. And there's, uh, it comes back with, I think Schindler and Helen Hirsch's scene in the basement much later on, where it's a, a very similar feel, different like techniques that I saw in that, but because of the extended length of these shots too, it, it just feels more real. And, I can't really put my finger on why the extended shots didn't bother me at all in this film, other than they were well executed, which is a total cop-out answer. But like so often I feel like to keep focus or keep the attention rather of audiences, you have to be a little more pithy and quick and have lots of movement for whatever reason. And I'm guessing it's probably the cinematography for me. Like you're, you're, wrapped with attention the whole time so next i think i we're not really going to be able to go like scene by scene with this one just because there is so much but i think the next main part i want to talk about 
is sort of the the introduction to Stern and the setup around Schindler's desire to buy this defunct enamelware factory and like that's how he's going to make his fortune. Yeah, I think that's <laughs> such a a profiteering move by him, which I is so consistent. Oh, he's absolutely a profit for the vast majority of the film. Mm, maybe for half or a little more than half of the film, Schindler is absolutely an opportunist and war profiteer who is inadvertently doing good thanks to Stern. Stern is kind of the MVP here. Stern's my favorite character. It's he's so good. Kingsley's my favorite performance. But leading up to the introduction of Stern and Schindler, you see, again, the bureaucratic slog that all of these relocated folks have to deal with in this giant line going to a council that has been given the illusion of power. And you're just waiting and waiting. I mean, it's that what is real power thing. It's like setting the stage for that conversation later. But then that and then the way they step aside for Schindler, because he's not supposed to be there. Yeah. And the way he like just moves through and, you know, he's got a mission. He's looking for Stern. That's the guy who was the accountant for the enamelware factory. He wants to know, like, is this the thing I can take over? And then also Schindler wants investors. He's like, I need the capital to start it. He's like, I can get whatever signatures I want. He knows he can manipulate to get the paperwork he wants. Yeah. And also knows that he can essentially take these Jewish folks for a ride. Because <laughs> like, on on the one hand, I find it to be exploitative. And on the other hand, he knew what was going to happen. So yes, he is profiting off of their situation and trying to like barter his way into not actually paying them, which I mean from what I understand it later in the film, he can't pay them (laughs) like literally cannot. No, no, no. Right now he's a hundred percent. Like he, there is no humanitarian aspect to anything he's doing right now. It is a hundred percent selfish. He wants a profit because if he hires Jewish labor, then he pays less and he's paying it to the Nazi government, not to the workers. If he hires non-Jewish Polish labor, he has to pay a little bit more and he's paying it to the actual workers. So he's 100% doing this on a selfish move. Stern uses it as an opportunity to save some lives. Yeah. And we see that super quickly. The editing, impeccable. Seriously, though, we again get a list-making scene where it is just lines and lines. Well, before we get there, he, he has gotten investors, convinced investors, and is now leaning on Stern to actually get laborers for his factory. Yes. So the thing with the list makers and the lines comes back again and again, and it almost always like precipitates a horrific event until the very last time it's mentioned when there is the bit where it's like, where are the list makers, which is the signal that stuff is even worse. So the way they bring that back and you always have the shot of the people, you know, at the little folding tables getting set up, you know, that bureaucratic machine getting to work. The way it's set up is, of course, you have the Jewish population has been sequestered into the ghetto in Krakow. 
it's walled off in order to leave that area you have to have a work permit that says you are an essential worker there is a heartbreaking scene where you have a history and literature teacher told he isn't an essential worker and he has that great line of like since since when is that not essential well and that interjection was essential because it goes back to the attack on history and culture and controlling that part of society as a means to furthering the Nazi cause. Like that was not a throwaway at all. (laughs) Absolutely not. It was like a textbook move. And I mean, you know, throughout history, like anyone who's conquered like one of the first things i feel like that happens is people start going after the culture of the people that they are trying to repress and harm is culture and history and knowledge is so important so yeah i just that scene um that might have been the first time i teared up (laughs) i don't think i was quite crying yet but i was getting close but this is where we see stern in action yeah because stern he's been working with Pfefferberg, who is was like the contact uh, for Stern and Schindler to get black market goods. And he's like forging papers for this teacher to be like, nope, he's a skilled metal worker. He flat out pulls one worker from getting on the, I can't remember if it was a truck or a train at this point or what, and brings him back through the line with the work permit. Like yes. the, the way that Spielberg is building tension here is so masterful. Like there are countless close calls and they're all unique. They're all unique. It's all about like almost using this bureaucracy against itself. Like Stern is Stern is so smart. He he like understands exactly like what you have to do to like get around the obstacles in place. And he's going to do everything he can to get as many people through that. He's helping people who like desperately need it. Mm-hmm. And the way that that is then cut between like what is happening in line, like people either getting rejected or Stern helping them through the line. And then what's going on behind the scenes to like facilitate this is just great movie making. Yeah. And we see the training happening and the mundaneity of like what is actually going on in the factory. But I I do think Spielberg absolutely understood that people would understand the stakes. And so having such simple, again, banal sort of stuff in the factory is just a really weird like juxtaposition with the stakes at hand. And I, I don't, for me, that really hammer hammered home thinking that Schindler was kind of clueless, like a clueless yeah. profiteer who was like, okay, I, I can socially engineer what I want, but I have no idea what's actually going on. Well, and it's like how much is it is like choosing to be clueless. I feel like probably a lot, like, I don't know the minute an occupying force starts being like people of this certain race, religion, ethnicity, subgroup whatever have to all be in this area and like you can't leave and we're taking your houses and you have to have paperwork that proves you're like there's just a there's so many so many so many so many red flags yeah and Schindler is willfully ignoring them because that's not what's important to him right now like again completely selfishly 
motivated at this point. Like we saw the earlier scene of him walking through the apartment people had just been thrown out of as they have to be relocated. And like the contrast between like him walking through the really nice apartment versus like the one room that these people have now been forced to go to. And the line there, Schindler's line is it, it would not be better. And the woman who was forcibly removed from that apartment said it could be worse. Like, yeah, I just editing, Uh, writing, writing, cinematography there. Just it all came together to be amazing. So anyway, we're still not fans of Schindler. (laughs) No, not at all. Not at all. I mean, it's one of those things where because I knew where things were going, I was looking for signs of it getting there and they don't deliver for a while. So that I, I think was such a great choice. It's a really gradual progression i would say there are definitely like certain milestones that make him pay attention but like it takes time for him to actually go from like i'm doing this because this is the cheapest labor and i want to make money there's even the scene where his wife comes into town and he's saying like all of my failed businesses before like they failed because of one thing and i didn't know it was so essential to making money and that's war and you're like you're despicable that line and she's she goes luck no war oh god uh again and you're like this man's despicable going from that to by the end of the film where he has spent absolutely everything he has and has like put himself in grave danger and is like feeling guilty that like i didn't do more like it's it's a very large transition and the movie handles it i think with the appropriate amount of gradual transition Except for the very last scene, but we'll get to there. I I have a gripe with that. They just, the speech should have stopped at a certain point. Yeah. And so we can also see him kind of taking his weaseling, like a social engineering approach to building his company with the montage of building all of the gift baskets. I loved this. This is how you do a montage. (laughs) Uh, Where you have him listing all of the stuff he needs overlaid with what uh Pfefferberg has to actually do to get this stuff and it's crazy like oh under this railroad tie you can find sardines behind this medicine cabinet we have cognac like it's it's showing the lengths that Schindler's folks have to go to to get these illicit supplies in wartime yeah and then it results in this opulent gift basket like holy shit And all he has to do is tell them what he needs. Yeah. He's not having to do any real work yet. Yeah. He doesn't do real work for a very long time in the film. No, but this is like, it's so interesting because you can also see the groundwork that's being laid that allows him to pull some of the manipulation that he pulls later because he has to build up this reputation of like an I'm on your side. I like, I'm in it for me. I'm in it for the money. I'm about profit. Like, I don't care about people. I don't really care about my workers other than the fact that like, they're my workers and I need them to make more money. So while originally I think that persona is very true to who he is. Oh, and the like, I'm a womanizer, stuff like that. Like, It's true to who he is at the beginning, but then in the latter half of the film, he uses the reputation he created to actually do good. Yeah. So I think the next couple scenes um, 
that we really should focus in on start to, at least for the viewer, drastically raise the stakes for the workers in Schindler's factory. So the first is when the entire group of workers is walking to work in the snow and they are forcibly repurposed by some, uh, I guess, a group of Nazi soldiers, officers to shovel snow. Prior to this, we did get a quick vignette of a man with one arm profusely thanking Schindler for giving him a job in the factory. So um, really important to know that we had that conversation there. I There's a couple of things I want to call about that scene. It's when that's Schindler's first hint of what Stern's been doing. Yeah. Because Stern's like running the actual company side of stuff. And he's like, yes, this man's a machinist. And Schindler's like with one arm. And he's like, he does the button press. And you're like, Stern, I love you. You're amazing. And he says it all. He does it all with like such a quiet, straight face, too. It's just like, I love it. There's no room to argue with him. (laughs) No, Stern will, he will out calm you. He will out reason you. Like he, it's, and it's, oh, Kingsley against like Neeson in those scenes is just so good. But Schindler's like kind of like Stern, I like he knows what Stern did, but he doesn't want to like, say anything he doesn't want to admit it because then he has to potentially confront the illegality of his operation and actions yes he he doesn't want to get involved also i think that there's a certain level with this because i think it kind of you see it a little bit in another scene later where schindler's uncomfortable accepting the thanks because he knows he doesn't deserve it Mm, that's an interesting read on that i hadn't thought of that i think there's a little bit of that there i like it so um This particular worker uh, does come back in this scene. Um, So again, we've mentioned it many times, but we are now going to start hitting the very violent part of this film, and it's going to go for pretty much the rest of the movie. So um, if you would not like to listen to that, uh, yeah, now is the time to stop. So back to the snow shoveling scene. Some of the Nazi soldiers who had told all of these workers to shovel snow um, have run into the same man with one arm and the fact they're kind of laughing and joking about a one-armed worker that culminates in them shooting him in the head in front of everybody is just brutal and like i almost feel bad for saying that it was so such a well done scene but it was super effective it hits emotionally really really hard little touches like seeing his blood pool in the snow and then even hammering it home with some of the characters that we have followed where i think it was mila and her mother yeah don't look look at the snow yeah danka don't look like look at the snow because to up until this point like there has been violence but we have not seen casual murder Mm mm-hmm And this is the first time that happens in the movie. And it's like the movie as a whole has had a very dark turn, but this is a shift towards even darker. And like, I don't, it's just a very, very emotional, horrifying, sad moment. Yeah. And uh, I was about to say what I love, but I don't love it. But what was a really great piece of filmmaking is how they then transition to the stakes with Stern because Stern has a 
found himself on a bureaucratic list. I was going to say, though, we do find Schindler, I think, immediately after that, where he is complaining about, like, I lost a worker and I'm supposed to be compensated for it. Which, oh, that's again, right. Again, again, and I think this is something that, init- you know, initially, that is what it is to him on the face of it. Again, completely selfish, economic-driven. I think what it we see it become later in the film is that he starts pulling those cards to save people. Mm-hmm. Like at the very end when he won't let the guards in the factory because he's like, if you shoot someone, uh, I lose a worker and you go to jail and I get paid. So like, that's why I'm not going to allow you guys in there. But really, it's like, I'm not going to allow you in there because you're monsters and I don't want you shooting anybody. Yeah. So I think once again, we're seeing like the groundwork that then actually becomes like a character arc later. Yeah. And also that's just horrifying. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> yes. So the train scene. Stern has uh, found himself on another list. He didn't have his work papers. No. So he actually is on the train and Schindler has to come and find him. So it's it's interesting because this is the first time you under start to kind of understand his ability to manipulate the situation in his favor. Because he is flat out able to convince two lowly guards with their list that they're like, sorry, sir, the list is correct, which that line is just so dystopian. The editing is amazing in this, as is the cinematography and the blocking uh, all just coming together. But again, it's Schindler, Schindler or someone, or and you, we see Stern do this too. We've seen him do it already too, but someone using this bureaucracy against itself. And then also just like the power of a list. And the power of paperwork, like we see it over and over and over again, because what Schindler does when the guy doesn't want to let him find Stern and let Stern off the train is he says, what's your name? And he writes it down. So also the power of accountability. Yeah. Something that maybe there should have been a lot more of. But he's right. You know, he's writing down these guards names. He's like, well, what are your names? I'm going to write them down. And then he promises them that if they don't get his accountant off that train, then uh, they will be in Southern Russia by the end of the week. And then we have the shot of him, of uh, Schindler running down the platform calling for Stern. And then those two guards run into frame also calling for Stern. (laughs) And I just think that's a wonderful, wonderful moment and really good filmmaking. It really is. So we do get Stern out, but the scene that follows this, I'm trying to decide what this says about me, but like while I was saddened when they murdered the, the one worker, this kind of hammer home hammered home, this enormity of what was happening where they're going through Jewish folks luggage categorizing their stuff having other jewish prisoners go through like their jewels that to me just the scale represented by that pile of shoes just again talking about like the balance we're striking in that like you know this moment with stern and the platform like we're very invested in it and everything because like we know stern And like, that's kind of a more individual moment, but then again, just reminding you of the scale Mm -hmm. and like the amount of people that that happened to 
who weren't pulled off the train the way Stern was. And yeah, oh, just the like writing your name on your luggage, being some like the guards telling people to write their names on their luggage while fully knowing that like they will never see that luggage again. It's a level of horrifying and evil. Yes, yes, it is a level of evil that is so hard to comprehend. But the moment where you're seeing all of the stuff being categorized too, like, and then you stop on like the one worker's face. When he sees the gold teeth. I lost it and I never quite got it back. Yeah. So uh, very soon after we get introduced to Amon Goat, who is like this vice deputy in charge of the labor camp. He is the most psychopathic psychopath who ever psychopathed. Uh, yes. And you want to know what's truly chilling is when you remember this character based off of a real person. And all of the stuff that he does came from real accounts. Yes. Ralph Fiennes has this ability to like, I don't even know how to explain it. Exude evil. Yeah. In this like blank dead eye sort of thing. He does just his performance was. It's good. So good. Terrifyingly good. And as we're introduced to him, it's all of these quote unquote minor inconveniences that he is complaining about that all contribute to this just completely empty shell of a person like complaining about oh that's a villa that's just a house why is the top down i'm too cold like all all of this just like little inconsequential stuff against the backdrop of what's happening as they're driving into the concentration camp that he is going to be running on headstones from the jewish cemetery (laughs) like yes like it's it's the casualness of like like you said, like what he is considering minor inconveniences juxtaposed with the horrific nature of what's actually happening. It makes him a much in more insidious character. I need to go back and look at AFI's list of villains again, because I'm forgetting who outranks him. And see, this is why I was like, why is he not higher on that list? (laughs) Yeah. Ooh. And I mean, we immediately get introduced to this like cruelty and casual disregard for any Jewish person's life. life. I'm trying to decide whether it is human life or specifically Jewish people's lives. Well, you know, based on a speech he gives later, I think it's probably specifically, well, maybe not specifically, but like Jewish people and people who he doesn't consider Jewish people people. Mm. He has that line to Helen Hirsch. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know which one you're, which scene you're talking about. Yeah, where he talking about is that the face of a rat? But he basically says like you're human technically or something like that. Or but has this speech talking about how he doesn't consider her really a person, and it kind of goes back to like that scene at the train station and categorizing the stuff from people's luggage, including like family photos. It's like you just get such a clear view of the fact that like. Nazis didn't consider Jewish people people. Yeah. And, you know, you have an engineer who is a woman, civil engineer, trying to tell them how to fix a dorm. Again, I I feel like this movie relies 
so heavily on dramatic irony. And that's not like a critique. That's more of a like, we understand that this dorm doesn't matter, but she does not. And we know she does not. And we know that her being a squeaky wheel, which is like such, she's not, she's trying to do her job. She even says that means that she's now going to be targeted as a way of instilling compliance. Well, and then the fact that he murders her and then is like, do do what what she she said. said. Just driving home the evil. There was something I read one time that someone was saying, if you're, you're writing about something, it was like in the context of like story writing and like novel writing, but it was like, if you're writing about something horrific, the more horrific the event, the smaller the lens you need to have. Like that it's, it's the little things and having those like really narrow individual moments that like really drive home the emotional pain. I wonder if it's because like, you know, when you're like 6 million people died, it's like, that's a number that's so hard for like the brain. It's unfathomably large. But when you are showing an individual person, it's something that people can like understand so much more. And so like, that's, how you pack the emotional punch and that's what this movie just does again and again and again and again and again and visually they don't pull away like we see no we see every horrific death every single one yeah and the end to his like introduction sequence gives a chilling speech about the six centuries of history that never happened and that terrified the shit out of me like yes we know he's capable of horrible things but on top of that you're also going to erase any sort of history of the people that you're obliterating yeah i was reading that uh, part of the reason spielberg did this movie was because he had noticed that at the time there had been a rise in holocaust deniers and he was like fuck no and i feel like that's that speech just like makes me makes me think of that yeah So uh, moving on to what I think is the number one or number two most brutal sequence in the film. And I, I honestly couldn't tell you which. It's one of the most famous and probably has the most iconic visual from the film in it. And that is the liquidation of the Krakow ghetto. Which in reading more upon this like film, which you know I don't normally do, but was like, okay, I need to actually you on have this to, one. You have to. You have to for this one. Apparently, in when they were working over the script, Spielberg actually extended this sequence because uh, he wanted it to be unwatchable. Unwatchable, yep. Basically unwatchable. And um, it is. I'm not starting to just like uh, tear up thinking about it or anything. Um, so it... The way that they start this with, again, the bureaucratic bullshit and the planning on the part of the German soldiers and the sound here really stuck out to me because you have like the bootsteps and the barking of dogs and just this like chaos and you know what's going to happen. And that's that's the worst part is like you see all of this coming and you're powerless to do anything. The first family we see, it's like they prepared for this moment. They knew it was coming because they had like the box of like rings, basically like portable wealth, like mm-hmm. rings and diamonds and stuff. And they like hear the boots and they just calmly start like go get that from its hiding spot and then start putting it in bread and eating it. 
the way that the editing and sequencing of this builds tension because we we get those scenes but it's cut against multiple scenes of german soldiers forcibly evicting all of these jewish residents from their apartments rooms in the ghetto like their place where they were forced to live and that just calm inside heightens that like violent activity outside i don't know it just it's effective yeah i think we should pick moments from this sequence because like i mean it's like it's just so hard to describe it's something that you kind of have to watch and it will absolutely stay with you yeah i will just as one more kind of like general comment about this entire sequence is one thing that spielberg does in some of these most intense and violent and inhuman moments is he changes everything back to polish and german with no subtitles and that just for me heightens the confusion and chaos that the jewish folks had to have felt in the moment because you don't know what they're saying you don't know what they're doing you're just seeing them literally shooting people at the slightest sign of questioning it doesn't matter what they're saying yeah it's just horror after horror that's happening i think we there are a couple moments in particular um the hospital Uh, this is again edited in that like calm collected actions also we have not said this yet but just performances all around. I know we've talked about our main three, but like every single person in this movie from, you know, the Kingsley finds Neeson to all of kind of our like secondary cast who are tend to be like the workers that we're focused in on the most, like any extra just wow. Yeah. The number of outstanding uncredited performances in this. Amazing. The, hospital or sick ward i don't uh, seen in particular where they are clearly euthanizing their patients there because they know what fate is going to befall them just tore me apart and there was one one patient in particular that gave this i don't know how to describe it but it was this like at peace i know exactly calm sort of look to uh the nurse kind of as she was um giving her this this shot of uh poison and i just i was already like at an uh, emotional 10 and that like pushed me even further so i just it and that goes back to the the performances of even every single one yeah we have throughout like this scene like we're cutting between a lot of the workers we've get we've gotten to know so we go to the pfefferbergs you have mila who's like i won't go into the sewers and poldick's like you have to you have to i just need to go make sure it's safe we see him drop into the sewer in this alley uh turns out sewers not safe Soldiers were waiting. Poldick is able to escape 
And we see him further on in the sequence come back up through that same manhole. And there are just bodies everywhere. And there is luggage scattered along the street where people dropped it trying to flee. And you hear boots coming down the road. And you're just like, not again, not again, not again. And he pretends he's been ordered to clear the street of the luggage so that it won't get in the way of the soldiers. And they let him live. And again, the way the German soldiers are literally laughing about it, like, oh, you're you're so dumb. Like it Yeah. Just the way that the German soldiers minimize what's going on versus what you've seen. It's they're they're pulling out literally every technique possible to like heighten how horrific this was. Yeah. And it's like I was about to be like, it's subtle. It's not subtle. But like you also don't have no no one has to look at the camera and be like this is horrible. It's just like all so horrible and it's one thing after another and like when you're dealing with atrocity like a historical atrocity like this terrible it should be unwatchable. But also like you should watch it because history is important and you can't forget that shit like that happens. I think Donka and her mom are saved by a conscripted um Well, we have, first boy. off, them going to the neighbors. Oh, that's right, and trying to hide, but they can't. Because the neighbor has decided, she's like, I only have room for Donka, like the, the girl. Yeah. The mom is like, no, it's fine. Like, it's fine. Like, I'll go. And then as she's coming down the steps. So you have, obviously, like the German soldiers and like the SS and stuff like that. But then you also had this like, Jewish police force within the ghetto that we've already had. I think it's Goldberg is the character that we had like been introduced previously, but they also have a child yeah, who is part of this, which the horrors just continue. The, the boy like blows his whistle because I assume he's been told that he has to inform if he runs into a person and then he recognizes Danka's mom. And he is like, get under the staircase, get under the staircase. That kid's performance, the actress playing, the mom, like her performance, also incredible. And he hides her under the staircase. And then like when you see the soldiers come down the alley, he like tells them, I searched this house. There's no one in it. And then, of course, we have Donka running down too. And then the line, he said, I didn't know I had tears left at this moment. And then he like grabs their hands and is walking with them and goes, I'll get you into the good line. Just that child. You're using a kid that is too young to understand what's going on and making them your tool in the, it just, I, (sighs) it's heartbreaking. Every single moment is heartbreaking. Yeah. I think this is where we are uh, get get to wrong way to phrase that when we are first shown the girl in the, the red girl coat. in the red coat. So all of this periodically we've been cutting back to it, but Schindler and his mistress were horseback riding and then kind of end up on this hill overlooking it, so they can see some of what's going on. They can see like the lines of people being marched. They can see people being lined up and shot. Mm-hmm. I will say we cut back to them. Just enough. 
I want to say it only happens once. Like we it's see like him at once, the beginning. Maybe twice. It might be twice because we do see this is the bit where Schindler sees the girl in the red coat and it is the little girl. She looks like she's like three or four and she is wearing a red coat and the coat is the only color we have seen in this film since the intro. And again, probably like the most famous visual from the film. This is the only time we're really like at a distance Mm -hmm. and we can see her walking along the streets and through the people. And then eventually we follow her into a building where she hides under a bed. Yeah. And that's where we leave her. But the um, uh, atrocities are not over yet. Are only about an hour into a three-hour film. Yeah, because we now cut to the nighttime where the German soldiers are searching for any remaining folks that have been hiding. The sound design here, you have, we see people starting to, well, we see the German soldiers like lined up in like a stairwell of an apartment, quiet, and then we see people starting to like come out of hiding places And then we see a guy step out of a piano and we hear him step onto the keys and that kicks everything off. And then it's just gunfire, screaming, flashes of light. We have like the one shot back where you can see just the flashes of gunfire light in like all of these different windows. But that shot with the gunfire flashes in the window is with Goat commenting about how he is so inconvenienced by this. Yes. Such a horrible, horrible person. And yeah, that Mozart tune and specifically the comment about like, is that Bach? Oh no, it's Mozart. Mozart. Like who fucking cares? (sighs) Yeah. Anyway, that is where the liquidation of the ghetto ends in the, the film. We do get an interesting scene kind of hammering this home to Schindler where he sees his empty factory. And what I didn't realize until this point was there was an accounting update that Stern gave to Schindler about, hey, do you have any any inkling that this will go more poorly next month? And his comment is somewhere along, Stern's comment is somewhere along the lines of as long as there's a war, we're going to be good. Yeah, he said, well, the war could end. Yeah. And, uh, well, there was uh, a third option. And I think this is the this is the first moment you can't pretend that there isn't terrible things going on yet. Yeah. I would say Schindler's not ready to actively help quite yet. Yeah, but you can't. You, you must be willfully blind. Like, you cannot ignore the evil right in front of you. Yeah. So we then transition to the labor camp. I think this is where that line that you kind of mentioned earlier about the worst is over, we are workers now, and is immediately followed up by indiscriminate killing and murdering of prisoners by Fiennes' character. Like a a woman is tying her shoe and he shoots her from his balcony. Yeah. Shoots another person resting on a step and it just the, instills chaos and I don't know what it was about the way Fines moved, but it was so off-putting. Like the way he stretched after that too. Well, it just seems so casual and routine and thoughtless. Yeah. 
of him and like the true randomness of it is so scary. He just got up and then decided to do that. And that person happened to be tying their shoe at like the wrong moment. Like it just, I think that's the most terrifying part about it is that like he is, he is a truly chaotic character, but does it with such casualness and like it, it truly means nothing to him. Cruelty to him is like just standing up and going to get a glass of water from somebody else. Like it's, that's the terrifying bit. The way that uh, Spielberg described Fiennes' audition is like, I saw sexual evil. And that is such a perfect explanate, like description. Especially every interaction, every interaction he has with Helen. Yes, exactly. So scary. So I think around this time too, we get Schindler kind of setting himself up to continue to be able to operate his business uh, within the labor camp. It is interesting again, I shouldn't say interesting because we've we've been shown this multiple times, but he's continuing to be able to kind of work his social network and make sure he has a really nice silk shirt on and little things like that that draw in finds his character and it's like i i don't know i at this point i don't think it was keep your friends close and your enemies closer but that's definitely what it turns into so he he is able to set up his operation on the the labor camp itself and throughout this too you still get these comments about the bureaucratic pain of having to do all this quote having to i just i yeah you know it'd be so much easier not killing people there you go. And I think the very last scene in here that I vividly remember is when Stern is talking about specific workers that he would like in the factory with Schindler, kind of the evening of one of the parties. Um, and he has this line about, don't let things fall apart. I've worked too hard. Yeah. Holy shit. And then the way that they film him re-entering the camp, where as the gates close, you get the sweep of the searchlight just that's seared into my brain. I mean, yeah. among other things, but like that just, oof. I think the next piece we need to talk about is the Perlmans, because I think this is this is the first time he makes, he's, he starts consciously making unselfish decisions. Yeah. Because even though setting up the workers and being like, no, those are my workers. Yes, it's providing some small layer of protection, but it's not... Like, it's still in his best interest. Exactly. It's like that line that he said to his wife. It's it's like, I have all, all of these 350 workers to make money for me. For me. Yeah. Yeah. There's no, no selflessness in this. There's also, I don't have written exactly what scene it is, but there is a moment where uh, Goth says, uh, I know you to Schindler. And like one of the scenes they have together and I just like the moment, I mean, both those performances are so good because there's like this moment in like Schindler's eyes where he's like, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be this man. Yeah. Oof. So before we get to the Perlmans, there are two instances where Stern has relocated or moved around workers in the camp to save them from Goat's 
wrath. So the first being a hinge maker who, through no fault of his own, was not making a productivity quota. The tension in that scene with the misfires on all of their guns for everything was just such... It goes on so long. Talk about tension. And they periodically have other prisoners running behind them when they see what's happening. Like, it's just all of these little things adding up to this intensely charged scene. Yeah. But yes, yeah, Stern gets him into the into the factory. And then the other is the chicken and the boy who stole the chicken. I think that's the I think that's the same no, the boy didn't steal the chicken. I think that's the same boy who saved Donka's mom. Oh. I think that's the same kid. But yeah, some someone had apparently stolen a chicken and uh Goth wants to know who. So he has a bunch of the men and this like little boy lined up and is like, who stole the chicken? No one will say anything. He just shoots someone at random and is like, basically, I'm going to keep doing this until someone tells me. The boy starts crying. Goat takes that as I can manipulate this Mm -hmm. and is like, did you take it? And the boy's like, no. He's like, oh, but you know who did? And the kid like starts crying and is like, yes. And points to the guy who's already dead. Because the kid knows. He's like, if this works, then like no one else has to die. Because if he points yeah. to any other person, any other, like smart and brave move on the kid's part. Stern sees that and is like, we like, let's get this kid in the factory. Yeah. I'm going to take the opportunity to like save someone who has now attracted bad attention. And yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's something Stern has been doing. Schindler, at the very least, isn't fully aware of it. I feel like it's a he's kind of had like a don't ask, don't tell policy on this. Yeah, he he's making money hand over fist. He does not care to question Stern's like methods. Well, and he can also say at this point, all he would have to say is be like, well, I don't handle the hiring like he's he's protected. There's no risk for him right now. But he is about to, for the first time, decide to assume risk in order to do the right thing. And this is when there is a, a woman who we haven't been introduced to up until this point who comes to see him. I appreciated the way that they again made comment on Schindler's character where he will not see her until she dresses up and has to make herself attractive for him. I, yeah, they're not, I, I feel like it's not giving, they're not giving him a pass. Like there isn't just this moment where like suddenly he's a good guy completely. Like I, there is still commentary on like the less savory parts of his personality. Yeah. But she does eventually see him the way she is lit in this like angelic sort of way throughout the scene. I personally loved she is there trying to save her parents by getting them into the the factory worker pool. Well, and Schindler freaks out because she's like, it's known that like this is a haven, that this factory is a haven. And he's like, excuse me, flips out. Well, and then puts on this like ruse about you will not entrap me. <laughs> I, I understand that paranoia, but I like, ooh. She drops the the piece of paper that had the names of her parents on it. Schindler confronts Stern about this. He's like, I know, basically I know what you've been doing. And like, now you've put me in danger because words gotten out. But we end with a list maker pulling the Perlman's 
wearing Schindler's watch. And we get to see the Perlman's daughter watch them walk into the factory with this like massive like look of relief on her face. I love that too, because they start doing this. Um, there's like a sequence where they start doing this. So all of the fine things we saw him donning at the beginning of the movie for his introduction, we see him start to shed Yeah, because he's using them as bribes. And I just, I love that. I love the parallels. Oh, beautiful. Well done, Mr. Spielberg. So um, moving on from there, we have known that Gotham puts on these big parties for all of the German soldiers and muckety-mucks of the area. Um, In one particular party, though, Schindler goes down to talk to Helen Hirsch, who is the live-in maid of um, Gotham. And Beth Davids, so good. Yeah. She kills it, every scene. And she has some really difficult scenes. Mm -hmm. Because this particular one, you can see now that Schindler, like, I don't know, it it almost feels to me that now that Schindler understands what he's doing, he's essentially gathering intel on Goethe and to some extent trying to figure out a way to remove Helen from the situation as well. Yeah. This is where we have a brutally framed interaction between the two with her sitting underneath one of those old style bare bulbed fixtures and him to some extent interrogating her on that. And this is the one scene where I remember this super slow zoom into her and Schindler as she talks about goat and the fact that he is unknowable and like her recounting being beaten by him when she didn't save the bones for her, his dogs like, and you get, you get insight into go to where she's talking about, she's like at that. And I like asked him why he was beating me. And he was like, because you still ask, he's trying to break her yeah, completely break her. And I think at this moment he like almost has, and she just has the line where she says like, I, I know one day he'll shoot me. Like, I know that's going to happen. And then Schindler giving her like the last little, like just this little nugget of hope to hold on to. Mm -hmm. But it's also like a really bleak nugget of hope because it's basically like the psychopath likes you. So like you're more of a person to him. You're not random. So like he probably won't kill you. Yeah. Great. It's so bleak. It's one of the many bleak things in this film. Mm Mm-hmm. But that's followed up by what I think is my favorite interaction between, well, I just using positive adjectives for this movie, like <laughs> it like, just doesn't feel use right. Any. But this interaction between Goat and Schindler was amazing. The power conversation. Yeah. You have a very, very drunk Goat. I do like where he comments on Schindler. He's like, you're never drunk. And that's control. And that, yeah, that's power. That's control. And I'm like, Schindler, play your part a little bit better. There are moments where you think that, like, he's on to Schindler. Oh, absolutely. And then Schindler always was able to, like, pull it out in the end. But, like, there are some moments where you're like, "Mm." and this is kind of laying that groundwork for what will soon come. But the way that they have them blocked facing each other at different depths within the scene and the way they move the focus between them as the power shifts and who's talking and, I just, it's amazing. But 
best part is how they're showing Schindler's character shift. He's trying to like plant the seeds of a less brutal, well, hmm, less murderous, I'll put it that way, goat, where he, he gives this anecdote about the emperor sparing the life of one of his subjects. Yeah, he's saying true power is having the ability to kill and choosing not to. Yeah, that apparently is what sticks with Goat. This just drives home again, just like the despicable, unredeemableness of a creature as evil as Goat. We have multiple instances of Lishik, who's the other, who's like the kid that kind of is like also part of his household staff, dropping the saddle. And he basically is like, well, don't do it again. After like seemingly is going to kill this kid. We have the bit where the kid like can't get the stain off the tub. And he, oh God, this is so creepy. Fines does it so well though, where he does the I forgive you. But like kind of holds up his hand almost as if like a priest giving a blessing. No, I part it was I pardon you. Yeah. He says that to Leishik, Leishik leaves, and then you have the moment of him looking in the mirror and like trying it again, almost as if to see how it fits. Am I a forgiving person? Like, is this the type of power that feels right for me? And it turns out no. Cause he shoots Leishik. And we just have, you just see the mist shots as if, once again, oh God, it's so creepy. I hate it so much. But once again, as if he's like testing his own restraint. And then you just have Stern walking and like flinching. And then Stern walks by a deceased Leishik. So in the next sequence of events, we have three three separate events happening kind of edited interspersed between them so there's a a wedding happening in the camp we see schindler's birthday and we get what is a another terrifying scene uh between goat and helen in the basement yes yeah the scene with goat and helen i feel like that's the one we should really like dive into where's and beth davids is a best supporting actress nominee because she has she has no lines in this. It is a drunk goth harassing and eventually assaulting her. But like the whole it starts and he it's like as if he's having a conversation with her, but she's not replying because she can't. Because as he says at one point, he's like, Well, now you're wondering what the right answer is. I mean, honest, I think I think she has I think her right answer is to stay silent, which is what she does. But just like her reactions, this entire her reactions and or lack of reactions as like finds his monologue happens of like this one sided, insane conversation. And this is where he's talking about her being like technically a person and uh being like subhuman but also like clearly fighting his own attraction to her it's a terrifying terrifying scene yeah the lighting's amazing and the cinematography is amazing and the acting's amazing and i hated watching it yes it's finds is able to deliver these 
like wolves in sh- wolf in sheep's clothing lines. It's just like a shark circling. Yeah. And one thing that they did here that I noticed is they kept these like moist crackling speech noises. Like, you know what I'm talking about where someone will just like, it's a sound that people don't know they're making in between their words sometimes. And they kept it in here and just like, it just added in a really unexpected and horrifying way. And you can like hear sounds of the party upstairs. And this is all bumped up against a birthday celebration and a wedding celebration. So like you're it. Ooh, you're seeing the depth compared to some of the, some emotional highs of other characters. Yeah. So let's see. So as, as we move on from there, we get a, another brutal scene of a much larger scale where they are quote evaluating the prisoners of this particular labor camp to decide who should be moved or and who gets to stay they have everybody stripped naked and run around the muddy yard i was reading that this was one of the scenes that apparently spielberg couldn't even like really watch as they were filming which is understandable yeah it's it's a really rough scene, just like completely dehumanizing humiliation. But they like they have these like very small. It's kind of as you mentioned, where you focus in on the small things, where some of the women were pricking their fingers to use blood to put color in their cheeks, just to look healthier. Yeah, and then you intersperse that with really wide shots of the naked prisoners just literally running in circles, just. And you even have Goat come down and grab his mechanic out from the line and make some dumbass comment like, oh, who thought this was a good idea? Yeah, like, that's my mechanic. And so it's just pounding it in to the viewer how inhuman actions are. Yeah. And then we have at the end of that sequence... You have like women who work in Schindler's factory who are kind of like relieved and celebrating a little bit the fact that like they're considered fit to work and they're okay at least for a little while longer. And then you have the trucks with the children being taken away. Another breaking point for me in the liquidation of the ghetto scene was when they were separating families. And this was another situation of separating families from one another and it it just we zoom in on one particular child trying to find a place to hide and you see all of the children in all of these different spaces and he even jumps down the latrine and is some of the the, the kids there try to force him out because it's quote a taken like it's our spot is i think what they said and like that length to avoid being separated is just heartbreaking and just like, and they they use like the youngest kid, too, just to like drive home the point of like these poor children. Yeah, it's loss of childhood, adding just another layer of despair on top of this. Mm-hmm. So, kind of at the culmination of this other list making, additional list making, all of the prisoners who 
were selected to be relocated, I think, to Auschwitz, um, are loaded onto a train in the hot sun. This was one of the moments where you think Schindler's cover might be blown a bit. Yes. And I think it actually was. Yeah, maybe. there. There's a moment where you're like, has Goth figured it out? But it's it's like it's too cruel for Schindler to even really keep up a facade because you have the officers and like some of the other businessmen, including Schindler, sitting out next to the trains. It's hot. There's no water. People are absolutely stuffed into those trains. So then Schindler convinces them to bring out a fire hose. And the thing that is so damning about this whole thing is how damning to the the German soldiers in this scene is how they find it to be a huge joke. And they find it to be a joke because I think one of them says at one point, you're giving them hope. But Schindler, I think the moment where his like quote unquote cover is almost blown is when they can't reach the final two cars. And he's like instructing people and he's like, no, 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 stay longer on the window. Make sure you're getting the roof mm-hmm. so you can get like people with like in the whole car. But he's like, we can't reach the last two cars. He's like, well, I have a longer hose like in my factory. Like I could bring it here and we could like get to those last two cars. And the look that Goat gives him at the end of that, like after yeah. he gets the hose and has provided water to this train load of Jewish prisoners, like, Goat is suspicious, but I I am 99% sure that is why he ends up being targeted and incarcerated and interrogated for violating some policy that was put in place. That Schindler was locked up? Yeah. Because at his birthday, he uh, kisses one of the workers who like brought him a cake which is apparently in violation of some sort of uh, policy. But Goethe goes to bat for him. Yeah, that's the part where I think this is hammering home how in Schindler's pocket Goethe is. Because, I mean, at the same time, Goethe is profiting off of Schindler's activities, too. So, like, they're, they're, he has skin in the game, so to speak. But Oh, yeah, he's co-opted Stern and is like, you now work for me. Mm-hmm. Make sure Schindler's not cheating me. So anyway, that's uh, we see that, but he escapes mostly unscathed from that. But in his escape, we see what looks like snow, but is actually ashes falling from the sky onto his car. And again, adding to a long list of inhuman and demoralizing things that occurred. They are exhuming and burning Every body of every Jewish soldier, a soldier, not soldier, prisoner, every Jewish prisoner that has died at that camp. It goes back, I think, even to like liquidation of the ghetto um, because we do see the body of the girl in the red coat. Yeah, that is, we kind of seen a gradual shift in Schindler's. I think that's the moment of like, not only like he's been in the I will help frame of mind, but I think that's the moment that's like now the I will do anything to help. Yeah. And we get to see that transition of him that night where he is up late and like this scene oh. with him in Stern is I again didn't think I had tears left. Turns out I had a lot of them left and I I was bawling at this scene. 
both actors are so incredibly good. It's Stern and Schindler talking about how that camp is being closed down and they're being moved. And Stern's explaining to Schindler like what's been going on and that Goethe has him organizing the trains. And he said to, you know, make sure he put himself on the last one. And um, Schindler, we've seen Schindler offer Stern like a drink before a couple of times and Stern always turns it down. This is the exchange that like straight up broke me. Um, Schindler's talking about the war will be over. Like it won't last. Like it'll all be over one day. And he like pauses and just says, I was going to say we'll have a drink then. And tight zoom onto Kingsley as a single tear rolls down his cheek. And he says, I better have it now. No words. Yeah. I just like, I just. But this all does finally motivate Schindler to do the extraordinary. And it's not without having to bribe. The creation of the list. Oh, yeah. This scene's so good. Or this sequence is so good. It's so like in this in, entire sequence, we're, we're seeing the list itself being written. You have both Stern and Schindler just listing off names, which he's listing off names. Like that, I think, was such a key choice to have him also be remembering the people that work for him. Mm-hmm. But he's bribing goats. He is trying to get other profiteers on board with this plan. I don't think that was successful, which was heartbreaking. The emotions are high. And then just him being like, how many names, how many names is that? How many names is that? And then you, you get to, yes. And then you reach the end where he says, okay, finish that last page. And, and we don't realize exactly that the reason he's saying, like asking Stern how many names it is, and then just being like more, is he's calculating the bribes. They get to the last page, he says, finish that page and leave one spot open. Okay, but before the exchange between Stern and him, Stern realizes and is says, you're not buying them. And we know he is. And yeah. at the end, his his delivery of this list is an absolute good this list is life all around its margins is the gulf like yeah the profundity again where is kingsley where's kingsley's <laughs> nomination oh. oh every delivery is spot on but then we do get to the point where he is negotiating for helen for a card game and trying to make it a bet like he's pandering to goat like, yeah i get it he knows goat he knows how he has to play this. And yeah, doing the, what was it? It's like blackjack. And he says, you know, if you get this, I'll pay you this much for it. But if you hit 21, I'll pay you like double. And then you have goats originally being like, no, like you can't have her. I'm going to take her back with me and she's going to like live with me. And what and- mental gymnastics did he have to fucking do? He's to, crazy. Like, I just. He's crazy. He, there is there is a like weird, twisted, concocted romance in Goat's 
mind because he even says like I'm gonna grow old with her and Schindler's like no you're not but we don't leave that scene resolved and we move toward list making again first Goth is like implies that maybe he should kill Helen and we're like no but then he has there's like the pause and like Schindler's super tense about it and then you just have him be like what was it if I got 21? Like All Schindler had to do name? was be like, okay, and start to take the cards away. And yeah. yeah. That scene is so tense. We don't know the outcome either, which is Mm-mm. just, ugh. And cut to the list of names being pulled from the workers at the camp and put on a train. It mirrors so closely the first scene of Jewish folks from the countryside being brought to Krakow, where you have the names and the list makers at their table. And we end with Helen Hirsch. So that whole time I was holding my breath. <laughs> I know, but you know she got out. Yeah. Like, you know she yeah. did So we follow the men's train to Czechoslovakia and we see them arrive and are like waiting with bated breath for the the women's train to follow. Again, the fucking paperwork. Yeah, because we cut to the women's train and we see them arrive in Auschwitz and we know this is not the right. No, and there was a scene um, earlier with Mila telling like the horror story of the gas chamber and everyone being like, that, that can't be real. Like, it doesn't make sense. Like, it can't be real. And when they arrive in Auschwitz and they realize where they are, you have Mila standing by the window. Mm-hmm. Again, amazing performance. Just the, like, realization of we're not in the right place and you know she's remembering that story. Mm-hmm. And they make comment about how there aren't list makers. Right, and... Every time the list makers have shown up, for most of the movie, it's a bad, like a new bad thing that's happening. Then you have the list makers show up and it's a good thing because it gets them on the train. And then finally you get to a place where it's like the lack of list maker is terrifying. And the way that this was filmed too from inside the train where you get the lights coming through the slats and just it's so it's terrifying in every sense of the word. It's a horror movie. I mean, I know like it's not like technically a horror movie, but like it's a horror movie. Yeah. The way they build tension, like the visuals, not to just mention the general horror of what is happening. And I mean, they end looking at an incinerator smokestack where you can hear the roar of the fire. The way that the women look at that is just so telling that they know the danger that they are in and what's coming for them. So we do get some relief, like tension wise from that where Schindler does realize what happened and knows where the train is and is working to solve it. We have him bribe yet another official and the way this one in particular, the way that the official was shot where the highlight was on kind of the lower portion of his face. And it was yeah. like kind of this anonymous this war machine. This faceless bureaucracy. Yeah. And that comment about, oh, I wasn't, didn't say that I wasn't going to take them. I just don't like them on the table. Like, 
the bureaucracy of it all. Just, and just like hiding behind it and being like, well, but like it's so much paperwork for me to get you your workers. Like I have more people coming in. You can just have those be like, just, it's despicable. But it gets worse with the sequence of in the induction of the women at Auschwitz. So we were told about the story, um, like you mentioned, and beat for beat, we are shown the story as this particular set of Jewish women that we've been following this whole time are shorn, are stripped, and are crowded into a shower room, which in the story is a gas chamber. The moment before the water actually turns on, I and I, so I had seen the movie before. This is not my first watch. I've very distinctly remembered this scene so I at least like knew I knew that it was going to be okay (laughs) I did not know that it was going to be okay because the whole time this was happening you also see these women become more and more terrified and the way that they huddle around each other naked in the shower room for any bit or shred of comfort. And you see, I think it was Mila's face as she has resigned herself to death. I I was, I was crying too. I don't know. Even when the showers came on one by one, moving down the chamber, I was still terrified for them like terrified because I didn't think that they were out of the woods yet. No. And you can see the, the moment of like relief, but also like trepidation to when the showers come on. I just, yeah. They escaped this one peril, but that doesn't mean that they're safe. Absolutely not. And we're reminded of that after they're being like marched back to their barracks and we see other people being led away. Yeah. And we have the ever-present smokestack, just like the urgency yeah. is there. I mean, so so much of this movie is like so brutal and so hard to watch. I I would put that up there as like one of the toughest scenes. Yeah. They do finally get rescued, though. We have another very scary moment in Close Call, though, when they're trying to take the children away. And... Schindler is so over the shit at this moment. Like he loses it and he stops them. And then just the moment where he like grabs one of the kids and is like, their fingers polish like shell casings. Like how else am I supposed to do that? Like again, just going in on the like playing the, I'm the industrialist. These are my workers. Mm-hmm. I care about the profit thing. But like that, like that like line and what he's saying contrasted with just like the sheer like desperation in his voice is but the relief as they pull away is... Uh. So everybody is now at the factory in Czechoslovakia. And so we get a sequence of showing how he is treating all of his workers as humans, as like... I love the moment where Stern's like, uh, sir, so like we have an issue because they're making 
shells and like bullets and like tank shells and stuff at this new factory and stern's like so what literally nothing we produced (laughs) past inspection there's a rumor you've been messing with machine calibrations um you realize if nothing we produce ever passes inspection we get shut down and like I, again, like Shin, I feel like Schindler was a little short-sighted in that moment, but then he's like, okay, fine, we'll go buy the stuff on the black market. We'll pass it off as our own. There's the kind of moment where Stern's like, what does that matter? And he's like, that, then there are fewer bullets. Yeah. Like, I, th- I feel like this, that's moment, that, and then when he brings his wife in and he like says, I can promise you that no doorman, no maitre d' will ever think you were anyone other than Mrs. Schindler. So I think like... That conversation with Stern and that scene with his wife is like symbolism of like his arc has come. He has grown and changed. And his line, if this factory ever produces a shell that can be fired, I will be very unhappy. So really, I think his final speech after the surrender is announced I think that's, is yeah. monumental. You get to see how far he has come. He knows what the German soldiers have been ordered to do calls their bluff to great effect. And I don't know, that was a little bit of additional tension that I was like, Oh my God, but convinces them to leave without killing every single person at that factory. But the way that he then moves in to a moment of prayer and silence for all of the families and friends of the people that were there coming very closely after he was allowing all of the workers to keep the Sabbath and you have the one uh, rabbi praying like I, it was powerful where they lost me though, was how far they took his breakdown as he is fleeing. I agree. So that scene I think starts really nicely and is perfect up to a point. And that is you have, it's nighttime the car is waiting. You have Schindler and his wife walking towards the car. Stern comes up to meet him. You've got the workers, you know, lining the the road out of the factory. And Stern has the letter. Because uh, in his speech at the end, Schindler has made it very clear. He's like, you know, I'm a member of the Nazi party. I'm a war profiteer. I'm, I'm going to be hunted. Like, I... You'll forgive me if I have to flee. So Stern presents him with a letter that is signed by every single worker, which so another another list. So the original list saved them and then they're hoping to save him with another. Um, basically saying like... It's like an attempt to explain what happened. Right, just yeah. explaining. So I give him that and there is this like quiet, really beautiful exchange between like Schindler and Stern and they've made a ring that has the the quote. Mm-hmm. Whoever saves one life saves the world entire. This is where I think the speech should have ended. Like this little segment should have ended. And that's when Schindler kind of like whispers to Stern, I didn't do enough. And Stern just responds with, you did so much. And I think if it had ended there and like the Schindlers had gotten in the car and driven away, I would have been like perfection. Yeah. What happens is then there is like a much more like outward public breakdown for Schindler. And he's being like, why did I keep the car? That could have been like four more people. This he like pulls off the Nazi party pin and is like this pin. I could have gotten two more people or one. He would have given me one more for this. Like it's gold. Like I understand the sentiment behind it, but it didn't have the same 
emotional impact that like the exchange had been going for. Yeah. Like I just, I appreciated the more understatedness up until that point. One of those things where, yes, you've been through a lot, but the extreme response almost felt like it minimized the reality of all of the Jewish people that he just was able to rescue in in that juxtaposition with his expressed pain it just felt extremely in poor taste and almost like he was looking for validation in a way that i didn't think he needed yeah it felt like a little over the top in a way that nothing else in the movie yeah is like that was the only moment that ever felt like even close to inauthentic and i just and like i just that, I love the, I, I didn't do enough, you did so much. Like, that's just so perfect. Mm-hmm. And I feel like encapsulates, like, that feeling and that pain and that guilt. And they should have just left it there. And also just, like, I just like when Kingsley gets to have the last word. Because <laughs> he's so good at it. I was reading that that, kind of the justification for that was something along the lines of allowing the audience time to to mourn what didn't happen along with Schindler. But I do think it could have been subtler and more tasteful, like maybe in the car with his wife. That's just my... Yeah, and I have to say, I mean, I I like... Basically, the only criticism I saw of the movie was like that people were like, yeah, that got a little... Like that one little bit got a little melodramatic. And I... Does that markedly detract from... No. No. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely not. It won't. I just... We're being a little bit nitpicky, and I would say, like, my only thing is that I wish that they had ended that speech there, and that's, like, literally the only thing that I'm, like... But you rapidly move into wrapping it up in this epilogue, where somewhat comedically, a uh, Russian soldier comes in and says, you have been liberated, which... That coming from a Russian soldier who just happens upon a group of and we're not Jewish in Cold War yet. I just give them give them like a little bit of time before Cold War starts up. Um, well, no, but, no, 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 no. It's not that. It's just more like the ridiculousness oh. of just finding arguably free <laughs> people just sleeping on the ground outside and I'm saying you like, have been liberated. By the way, it just that was kind of funny to me. There also is. A heart-wrenching moment, though, where um, they're like, okay, but, like, where do we go? And he's like, well, don't go east. They don't like you. Don't go west. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I think I, I. it's, like, a nice little bit of just, like... It's decompression. Commentary on that, like, yeah, racism didn't end yeah. when World War II ended. Anti-Semitism didn't end then. No. But we do get the beautiful shot of them walking over the hillside en masse as they approach the town. And it transitions to full color with some of the, the survivors in modern day, like 1993. Mm-hmm. And that was very cool. I think following any other film, the epilogue where they are filing by Schindler's grave and laying rocks on his grave is a sign of, of respect. 
I would have found that to be kind of contrived. But after this, I, I don't know. It felt right. I mean, at that point, I was like, this film can do whatever it wants. Yeah. We do get to see Goat get his comeuppance. He's hanged. In his case, you love to see it. Exactly. I Yeah, it, that was, I mean, considering all of the just like horrific stuff we saw, like it was nice to see like the big non-faceless villain that we had in this one being like, like actually getting his comeuppance. Yeah. It made me extremely resolute in my belief that Nazis, no matter how old, still should be prosecuted. It's the right ending for him. Yes. Um, oh, I do. I don't think we quite mentioned it in the epilogue, but it is the surviving people who were on Schindler's list and then the actor that portrayed them, which I thought was cute. I do like that. Anyway, that's Schindler's list. Thank you for sticking with us through this absolutely heart wrenching episode. And long to boot. Oh, I we never mentioned this. This is over three hours long, and I don't care. <laughs> no, 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 no. Like every every bit needed to be there. Yeah. All right. Shall we rank this? Um, it is my new number five. Right after on the waterfront, which on the waterfront, I think I can emotionally handle watching again. I don't know if I can if I can handle watching Schindler's List again. Both amazing cinematography, both really good performances. Um, again, kind of looking at like broad issues and zeroing in on individuals. Number five puts it right above All Quiet on the Western Front. I mean, nothing nothing we've watched has been like Schindler's List, um, but I think that would potentially be the closest. And just like the way you're looking at like the horrible things that humanity is capable of. Um, I think that first like trench battle where it's a visual we've referenced multiple times, but in all quiet where you have the hands on the barbed wire and it's just that really long, like push into the trenches and it's just like really brutal and sad. Similar to the liquidation of the ghetto. It's like, you're watching this like drawn out, very horrible sequence that is made with the intent of like making you reflect and like it wants you to flinch. But I think I think Schindler's List is just it's technically better than All Quiet on the Western Front. And it like the performances are better. And I cried more. It's more effective overall. So I I feel I feel so shitty comparing it to anything else, but new number five. Yeah. I I struggle with the same thought around how do I compare this? Yeah. So um, I am also putting Schindler's List at my new number five. I very much struggled with the same kind of thought that you did around, like, how do I compare the subject matter of this film to others in my list? And in a similar kind of uh, like determination for me, I thought that this film was awe-inspiring and is on my list of must-watches. I'm not sure, like you, I can watch it again. And that is, I think, why I'm struggling to put it higher. Um, But it comes after Rocky, which is 
spectacular film in its own right with rewatch <laughs> like it's rewatchable and triumphant and is yeah. in some ways um kind of like an opposite in mood um from Schindler's, Schindler's List. List is an important film it is not an enjoyable one no but I did put it before Platoon so Platoon has moved down to six and I see a lot of similarity between the two in efforts to make portions unwatchable I think Schindler's List from a technical and artistic perspective, far outstrips Platoon in that department. Everything Spielberg did was intended to have this like gut-wrenching effect on us as viewers, and it works. Similarly, I don't think I can really watch Platoon again, but again, for, for different reasons, so... Yeah, I think we're both of the opinion that it's like everyone should watch this film, but like you're most likely going to only want to watch it once. Yeah. And frankly, probably only need to watch it once because there are things that are absolutely going to stick with you. Now, do I think uh, the world at large is due for a special edition re-release? Yeah, I think so. I think this particular historical atrocity needs to be kept further in the front of our minds these days but um, so um that is schindler's list um we really appreciate all of you who made it with us through a, a very very rough but very important film um and given kind of the solemnity of everything there i think we'll leave it at that um thanks for listening